You're listening to the Six Degrees of C Dub, a segment of the C Dub Show. Visit us on the Say Something Nice Podcast Network at SSNPodcast.com. Follow us at the C Dub Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And now, on to our show. In the days when I was a teenager Before I had status and before I had a pager You can find the abstract Listening to hip hop My pops used to say it reminded him of bebop I said well daddy don't you know that things go in cycles Way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael It's all expected Things are for the looking If you got the money, quest is for the booking Come on everybody let's get with the fly mode Still got room on the truckload of black gold Listen to the rhyme to get a mental picture Of this black man, black woman picture why do I say that? Cause I gotta speak the truth, man. Doing what we feel for the music is the proof and planet on the ground. The act is so Well, good morning or good evening or good afternoon, wherever you are and what time it is. This is another episode of the C-Dub Show. And today we actually have one of our special episodes, which is called The Six Degrees of C-Dub. And this is going to be my favorite episode that we have recorded so far. It's been an episode I've been looking forward to for over a year, and it is finally here. We have one of my favorite people in the world that I'm going to be introducing or interviewing on today. Um, And let me tell you a little bit about who we're having. We have the amazing, incredible Kevin Powell, who is one of the most acclaimed political, cultural, literary, and hip-hop voices in America today. The Jersey City product of a single mother, absent father, horrific poverty, and violence, he was able to study at Rutgers University in his home state of New Jersey due to the educational opportunity created during the civil rights movement. Kevin says just to be able to get to college to be exposed to a new world, a new way changed my life forever. And I am forever grateful to the EOF program for giving me a chance. Kevin has gone on to be a writer who has penned articles, essays, and blogs for a wide range of newspapers and magazines and websites, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, NPR, ESPN, Essence, Ebony, Rolling Stone, Esquire, HuffPost, and Vibe. I'm surprised that I do not see um, Write On or Word Up or something in there, but maybe that's a little bit too old, where he was a member that was a senior writer and founding staff member. This year, Kevin has written British GQ cover stories on Black Panther movie stars Michael B. Jordan and Chadwick Boseman and currently hosts an Apple podcast called One on One with Kevin Powell. Kevin is the acclaimed author of 13 books, including The Education of Kevin Powell, A Boy's Journey into Manhood, which is being adapted for television. His 14th book will be a biography of Tupac Shakur, who Kevin interviewed many times while working at Vibe. As an activist, Kevin is also a co-founder of BK Nation, a new American organization and website focused on civil and human rights and equal opportunity for all people. And he ran for Congress in New York City in 2008 and 2010. 
In terms of content creation, Kevin is one of the producers of She, a choreo play, a major theater production about ending violence against women and girls and healing and empowerment with his wife or created by his wife, Jenna Parker, the dancer, choreographer, and playwright. She will make its off Broadway debut in summer of 2019. Kevin and his wife are proud and longtime residents of Brooklyn, New York. Please, y'all, help me welcome to the podcast Kevin Powell. Woo! <laughs> I, I don't have any. I don't have any applause sound effects. I'm sorry. <laughs> cool. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Kevin. Where are you joining us from this morning? Berkeley in the Bay Area. I'm out here for 10 days doing um, talks, speeches, a 13th book, um, which is called My Mother, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and The Last Stand of the Angry White Man. It's a collection of essays. And so I, w- I was in Hayward last night. It was a great community event, Hayward. Uh, shout out to Zeta Phi Beta Sorority, their local chapter for Hayward. Uh, I'm in San Francisco. I'm in San Rafael. I'm in Oakland. I got, it's a lot going on and um, I'm just excited to be back in the Bay, which is what I love so much. You know, I love this area. Like I love Brooklyn, New York, where I live at, you know what I'm saying? We love you in Oakland and we are secretly trying to steal you. I already stole Gabby. I brought Gabby (laughs) from, (laughs) I brought Gabby from Brooklyn and now she lives in Oakland. So I'm working covertly to steal you and Jenna, but that's completely off the subject. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you a question. Um, Let's just get right down to it. The book is my mother, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and the last stand of the angry white man, um, which is an interesting title to me. I'm a big fan. I don't know if you know the author, Fanny Flagg, the writer of fried green tomatoes um, and the whistle stop series. Yes, I love Fanny Flagg. Yes. And one thing she always she always towards the end of her stories because they usually go from about the 50s to the 2000s. She always gets to how the white men who grew up in the 50s, how they feel about current day society. So the reason I typed I I tied her in is because what do you see as the stand or the last stand of the angry white man? What does that mean in the context of your essays? That's a great question. You know, people on surface think I'm only talking about Donald Trump, but I'm actually talking about a mindset that has permeated America since the very beginning of the so-called founding of America, the so-called discovering of America. It includes Christopher Columbus and all these other so-called explorers. It includes these uh, so-called pilgrims and settlers who committed genocide against Native American people. Sure. It includes the folks who enslaved African people and turned us into uh, slaves in this country. It included the founding fathers, many of whom were the so-called founding fathers, many of whom were slave masters, including George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And and it includes you know this whole history of seeing America only through the lens of of of, of heterosexual cisgendered white males as if no one else existed not women of any race or background uh not the lgbtq community not black people not other people of color not poor people uh not immigrant people and certainly not indigenous people or native american people and so i'm saying at the country enough of only seeing this country and this world through the lens through the lens of heterosexual white males we are all right. equals and we got to challenge this history. And that's what the book ultimately does. Does and When I talk about gender, gender identity, race, class, et cetera, you know, my, my, my goal is to debunk a lot of these lies and mythologies that we've been taught, uh, you know, from generation to generation about what America is and, and really talk about it in a very honest way through 
uh, uh, the stories of my mother, through the stories of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, through the stories of Prince and Jay-Z's 444 album. There's a range of things that I use kind of as jump off points to talk about this whole phenomenon of what we call America. Right. And it really functions to insert all of those different narratives and stories that you use aside from, you know, white men into the narrative. So your mother, who I would assume is a certain probably around the same age as my mother, maybe um, around 60 ish, maybe late early 70s, which means that they were really alive during, you know, the time of not just the civil rights movement. But my mom always talks a lot about her life during Jim Crow. We, we, we tend to forget that our mothers, not just our great grandmothers, our grandmothers, our our parents were part of Jim Crow and they're still here to tell our narratives and our stories. It's so funny that you mentioned um, having the media that was not just out of the lens of white men because I was recently watching um, the documentary Color Adjustment and it talked about how like the shows of the 50s and you know how the whole point was to make it look like America was just white. Um, do you do you think that we are currently doing a good job of reinserting people of other identities into the narrative? This is why I love people like Ryan Coogler, like Lena Waithe, you know, uh, Donald Glover, A.K. Childs Gambino, you know, the, the number of sisters and brothers who have, who have, you know, literally taken by storm pop culture and said, we're going to create TV and film that reflects, you know, all these different identities, because that's important. I mean, I think it's crazy that, you know, uh, when Crazy uh, Rich Asians came out, you know, er uh, earlier, a few weeks ago, I should say, my wife and I went to see it, my wife Jenna and I went to see it, and it blew our minds that we had not really seen any movies with Asian folks as central characters, and I did some research. It, was since, it hadn't been since 1993 that a Hollywood-produced right. film, that, and that was the Joy Luck Club. Joy, that's what I say, the Joy Luck Club, yes, which which got, you know, had backlash, actually. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and then as a kid growing up, you know what it was. It was just the martial arts films, the karate films. Of, you know, mm -hmm. Bruce Lee is an icon in the black community, but he was like the only Asian person that we could actually name, most of us, you know, who was famous because you just didn't see it. And so I think, you know, we do a disservice to all of humanity you know, when and when people are missing, you know, because of their race or their their gender, you know, uh, because of their gender identity, uh, they just not represented, you know. And I think it's, you know, or even when we have characters who are, you know, say uh, transgender, and you have heterosexual cisgender folks playing them as if transgender actors and actresses don't exist. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a big thing and a big mess. Um, you know, we, we currently mean Scarlett Johansson a lot. She's played every identity. She hasn't played a black person yet, but we, <laughs> we're kind of waiting on it. So here's another question. So your writing, um, of course, touches a lot of topics, like you said. However, one of the recurring topics is manhood through the lens of hip-hop. Many of your essays use some of your most beloved our most beloved rappers to deconstruct their manhood in their journeys what is your take on what we are currently seeing with one mr kanye west if you still had time to keep writing the book and you were writing an essay right now about what we just saw with kanye west what would be your take on what happened i think that i can't personally talk about kanye west uh, without also talking about the issue of mental health, you know, um, mm -hmm. for me, I, I look at his whole journey and I've been a fan of his and admire of his since the very beginning. And I was actually, you know, he comes out of that whole tradition of, of, of children of the movement. Both his mother and father were very woke activist scholars. And so, you know, like Tupac, whose mother was a Fannie Shakur or, you know, other folks who had parents or a parent that were in the movement. Kanye comes out of that. That's why he has an African name. His first name is Kanye, you know. But okay. I also think as I'm doing the Tupac book, what has come up over and over again um, is 
The, you heard that beep just now? <laughs> I did. Well, we have, you know, normally on the C-Dub show, we have a whole three-year-old child who's like yelling in the episode. So it's fine. A beep won't hurt us. It was actually, it was actually you <laughs> tagging me just now. That's what it was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We should do that, uh, I guess. But um, no, I, you know, two, you know, what I'm getting at is what, as I've been doing the Tupac biography, interviewing a number of rights movement, the Black Power Movement, the Black Liberation Movement, as well as children who are contemporaries of uh, of um, us who are who are children of the movement, is that there really has no been no real discussions about what 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 traumatized us coming out of that era, you know, what, what, what we grew up with. And I mean, the reality is racism or sexism or homophobia, transphobia, any system of oppression is going to be a traumatizing force in our lives mm. in this country. That's a real, a reality. You right. know? And, and we don't know what, tra- what traumas and pains that Kanye grew up with. That's number one coming out of Chicago. Then number two, nothing really prepares you for fame. You know, as you know, in the yeah. 1990s, I was on the first season of MTV's The Real World. And then literally, as we were taping that first season, I started writing cover stories for what became Quincy Jones's Vibe magazine, the fastest growing pop culture magazine in the country at the time, in the history of the country. Literally, I became known overnight, went from anonymity to being to being known. Nothing prepared me for that. It is overwhelming. You know what I'm saying? And as, as a result, as I talked about in my previous book, The Education of Kevin Powell, I literally, you know, went from a, a freelance writer just hustling and trying to make a living writing articles for magazines and newspapers here and there, including the black press, shout out to black newspapers, to, you know, being this voice who was documenting people like Tupac Shakur and, and, and Snoop and all these folks, and also part of a TV genre, you know, that exploded in 1990s reality TV. And by the time Tupac was dead and Biggie after them, I was actually a drunk. I was you know, self-medicating on liquor for several years, which wow. is one reason why I don't drink now. I'm a vegan. So I actually have sympathy and compassion for Kanye because I know what it's like from my own experiences. You know, uh, you, you literally stop growing, you know, unless you mm. make a conscious decision. You know what? I got to be on. I have to keep evolving because all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of yes people around you. Um, and, and it's a very dangerous space that you're in. And I saw it happen with a lot of people, you know, and we've seen it with Whitney Houston. We saw it with Amy mm. Winehouse. And it almost feels like we're watching the, the, the destruction of Kanye West. And I'm praying, you know, um, that, that that he survives it intervention. I don't know if it can happen because, you know, I text one of my friends who's a famous, famous, famous person who's one of the few people that Kanye actually talks to. And he said, man, I don't know what we can do because he's off his medication. He doesn't want to get on it. He thinks that he doesn't. He isn't bipolar. I mean, it, it, watching him with Donald Trump, you know, the other day and he's saying that the red hat to make America great again hat makes him feel like a superhero. It speaks to a profound illness in this young man. You wonder about what happened with his when his mother died tragically with the cosmetic surgery function you, you think about all these things um and i just think that um i think that you know we as a society are quick to especially with social media are quick to label people and, and you know call people uncle toms and aunt mamas and sambos and things like that and i think there are cases where people are clear sellouts to the black race i mean clarence thomas supreme court justice you know ben right. cross and you know a lot of those those incredibly ignorant black preachers that support donald trump around the country you know who are some of the biggest homophobes you'll ever see you know uh, um you know talking about you know yes he's the best president black people have ever had i think they are in, insane self-hating you know with Kanye I'm saying this is a mental health issue and my prayer is that this 
gentleman just doesn't die right before our very eyes. That's the truth. That's how I feel about it. Like with Whitney and Michael, I, I, I was telling you the other night, the thing that struck me of all the things in the Whitney documentaries when they talked about how Whitney and Michael used to get together, which of course none of us knew, and that they would just get together and like not even talk to each other, just kind of sit in each other's presence because nobody understood you know, what they were going through. And I, you know, I listening to what you're saying about, you know, the mental health issue, that is definitely something that we don't pay as much attention to because we're so busy to kind of lump him in with the Ben Carsons and the Stacey Dashes of the world. Um, yeah, that's something that's very, very important. Let me ask you a question. If people, you know, if people get a chance to read or listen to the audiobook of my book, my memoir, my autobiography, The Education of Kevin Powell, even if you don't read the mm-hmm. whole book, called suicide and it's literally the, the chapter after the mtv vibe tupac chapters and i lay it out very clearly you know the debilitating effects of mental illness and depression and and so i just think that it's something that we as black people specifically and all people in this country have to be willing to talk about because many of us do not talk about it and when you mm-hmm. see the levels of violence in this country people seeing violence as the solution for all conflicts the mass shootings that happen the one-on-one violence that we happen what we see with young people like you you know you talked about the kind of kid the kids you work with there in the school system in richmond mm-hmm. you know all of that you know all of that to me ties back to mental health or the lack thereof well let me ask you this question i know we we touched a little bit on your time on the real world and i always talk about how you know that's when i became a super fan and i thought i was i was gonna sneak my mom up on you and and ask mama hey mom remember that time you bought me kevin's first book but she she's gone to church so she can't be on the show (laughs) (laughs) but one question that i often think about and i know you don't watch very much tv these days but from what has, from your perspective, what have you seen as the difference between, you know, being on what was basically the first reality show to where reality shows are now and the effects that has happened and having, especially on our youth? Like, like I always say, back in those days, if you hit somebody on the show, they spent a whole three episode arc about if you were getting kicked off the show. And now it's like a setup. You feel like if they don't fight in one episode, there's no show. And, and you see it a lot in the way that our kids connect with each other and the type of conversation conversations they have with each other and the way that they fight a lot more with each other. What what do you see in the differences back then in 92 to now in 2018? Well, number one, let me say this. When I when I agreed to be on the show, uh, and as I talk about in, in the education of Kevin Powell, I was simp- I was actually um, you know, a freelance writer and I was writing bios for di- different artists because I was just trying to make a living as a young writer in New York in the early 1990s. Like I wrote Usher's first bio. I wrote the bio for TLC. Um, I used to interview coach Chris Cross, you know, during the whole hype of jumping their, their their big hit record. And so I was actually with a group from Buffalo, ironically, the same city that my wife is from, Buffalo, New York, called Joe Public. They had a hit record. I remember Joe Public. Yeah. That's the live and learn dudes. All right. I actually wrote, I actually wrote their bio <laughs> and we were together at a restaurant a 1950s-style restaurant in uh, in Manhattan, right in Times Square, not far from where MTV was. And uh, a young a white sister named Tracy Fist, you know, came up to the table because you know you remember how I used, we all how I used to dress, my overalls, the you know the big shoes and the mm-hmm. my t- the twisted yep. hair and all that. And so she said, "I really like you guys. Look, you know, are you all? I mean, we're doing we're casting for a show for MTV." And she didn't know that they were a band because they didn't hadn't come out yet. They were just about to hit. 
And so I took the card. I said, this is interesting. And I didn't really know a lot about MTV other than MTV raps. And before that, that they didn't want to pay, play Michael Jackson videos back during right. the era, you know. <laughs> but I remember thinking to myself, you know, eh, it'd be interesting if I get on the show, maybe I'll get some speaking gigs out of it because I went to college with Sister Soldier, who was like a big sister to me during that time frame from the late 80s into early 90s. We did a lot of organizing work, a lot of protesting against racial prof- uh, pol- racial profile and police brutality, the same stuff that's going on now in the Black Lives Matter era. We were in the middle of all that stuff, Bensonhurst, Howard Beach, et cetera. And what I remember on TV, she got bookings for, for colleges, and that's how she was able to make a living. And I knew that because I used to work so closely with her. I used to handle a lot of the bookings. Well, let me tell you, um, I, I, I got picked for the show, and uh, you know, we all had careers. Uh, you know, Heather B was a rapper, I was a mm-hmm. writer, Andre was a musician, Becky was a musician, Julie was a dancer, Eric was a model, Norman was a visual artist. We didn't go on the show looking for a money, we didn't go on the show thinking this was going to be somehow some sort of boost to our careers. We had no idea what it was going to be, you know, and it didn't really hit us until after the show aired and they took us to the video music awards in 1992 in los angeles and that was the Mm. year of that was the year that nirvana exploded the red hot chili peppers you know with with their exploded howard stern exploded but when we showed up the seven of us it was like we were the Beatles. People were screaming like crazy i'll never forget that (laughs) like it was yesterday and it blew my mind it blew my mind but you know unfortunately over the course of the last 25, 26 years or so, just like journalism has deteriorated to sensationalism, there's been incredible dumbing down of media, of journalism, the same thing has happened with reality TV to the point where you have a reality TV show president who is ill-equipped and unprepared to be a leader of anything in the White House. And so, unfortunately, of the real world of reality TV is paralleling the complete dumbing down of the country in general. And I see it because I, since then, I've been to all 50 states. I've been to all the major cities, medium-sized cities, rural areas. I've been to all kinds of places I couldn't even have imagined back then. And you just mm-hmm. see how people don't know anything about America. You know, you see the hatred, the division, the violence that has intensified. It did not start with Donald Trump. This has been going on nonstop in a very calculated way. You know, because the Reagan revolution, the conservative movement in this country never started pitting people against each other and and so what has happened with reality tv is that people are have become what bell hooks described as being uh, addicted to the fame plantation where people just want to be on tv you know and and it doesn't matter what it's for like you know it doesn't matter you just want to be famous and anyone can be famous it's kind of like that movie with jim carrey in the late 1990s the truman show the truman show yes (laughs) and i remember when i saw that show which was in the midst of my great depression and, and thoughts of suicide after the real world after being fired from vibe after successful career there after tupac got killed after biggie got killed i said man that's what my life feels like and i remember thinking to myself i've got to get away from all of this and i got to go back to who i am which is why i said i got to reinvent myself all over again as the activist and writer that i was when i was 18 20 24 25 i have no interest in this world because this world is based on falsehoods. This world is based on plastic. And it has nothing to do with the essence of what I've been put on this planet to do, which is to serve and help people and to be the best artist, the best writer I can be. And so it's really it's really sad to me because you see everything being filmed. You see everything being put out there. You mm-hmm. see kids' fights being put on, on, on World Star and YouTube. We had a fight the other day. And those when, when kids fight, they just watch each other and pull out their phones. That's all they do profound isn't it it's profound and 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 i just think that you know we as america is something that dr king said at the end of his life you know that we need to be born again and it feels like that all over again where people really need to take a hard look in the mirror you know because what we are now 
people are going to look back 50 years from now, 100 years from now, where we're going and, and say, well, what were these people thinking? What were they doing with this obsession with celebrity, with this obsession to be seen, with this mm-hmm. obsession to out people, you know, with no regard for each other's humanity? And that's that's what troubles me about it all. Yeah, I was watching a, a show last night. It was a docu-series about, it was about um, peewee football in Liberty City. It was an amazing documentary, but it was interesting to me that one of the subplots is that one of the cheerleaders, her navigating, she's basically an Instagram celebrity. She's in eighth grade. She has 15,000 followers and her problems that she was having in school, she almost got her her cheerleading um, squad kicked out of um, their competition for making a Facebook Live. And it was just, just interesting to see how they navigate what's a celebrity and what's not. Um, I often think about how hip hop was born as a critical commentary on the world. And now we, as folks of a certain age, <laughs> are at an age where we, where those of us who are young fans can look back on it and critically deconstruct it and our community's journey with and through it. What does it mean that you, as someone who started as a fan, like all of us, and now gets to travel the world talking about race, gender, and other things, specifically through the lens of people who grew up you know, with hip hop, what does that mean to you? You know, I think that we have to understand that all pop culture, you know, all, all of the mass media culture has been dumbed down over the last 20, 25 years. And that includes hip hop. That includes rock and roll. That includes all. I'm talking about everything like mm-hmm. this has been a massive dumbing down of America. And so, you know, hip hop for me, I have to make a distinction. There's hip hop culture, which is what I represent. That's the DJ, the MCO rapper, graffiti artist, mm-hmm. graffiti writer, the dance element, which has, you know, many different forms, break dancing to the PB Herman, you know, to the WAP or whatever we do that we move. And then the fifth element of hip hop, as I was taught, you know, by pioneers of the culture, by the folks who came before us, is knowledge. So the DJ, MC, uh, dance element, graffiti, and knowledge, those are the core elements of hip hop. And we understand that hip hop culture was created by the same poor people that Dr. King told us not to forget at the end of his life his, via his yeah. Poor People's Campaign. Poor African Americans, poor West Indians, and poor Latinx people, sisters and brothers in a place called New York City. While there was a parallel energy happening in the 70s and 80s, very important for me to say this, especially being in California, there was a parallel energy on the West Coast, African Americans and Latinos, Latin, Latinx community creating the same thing. When you look at rerun dancing on, on what's happening, mm-hmm. that TV show in the 1970s, those are hip-hop dances. You know, when you mm-hmm. see Soul Train, it was filmed in the 1970s, and a lot of the moves that were happening, popping and locking, all that kind of stuff, that was hip-hop, you know what I'm saying? The stuff that eventually influenced Michael Jackson to do the, to, to do the moonwalk, that came out of California. So poor people created hip-hop. What I, and it was there was a balance there. And we got to be clear, hip-hop has always been male-centered. It's always been high, very, very male-centered, you know? And it was... There was there've been women there from the very beginning, but when I say male centered, heterosexually male centered, so there's right, yeah. homophobia. There's always been sexism, you know, there. But we, as and I include myself in that, when we were growing up, we didn't see these things, you know, because we were just right following the script that we were given. The big difference, in my opinion, from the late 80s, early 90s, what we call the golden era of hip-hop to now, is that there was balance. You know, you had Queen Latifah, MC Light, you had E-40, you had Too Short, you had Public Enemy, you had N.W.A., you know, you had J.J. Fad, you had a range of voices. I mean, we would get excited because you never knew who was coming out next. You know, I was just listening to Dale the Funky Homo Sapien the other day. I'm just yeah. like, you know, who was Ice, who was, who's Ice Cube's cousin? And they're like, night and day. Here's Dale, who's like this kind of hippie. Really? 
yeah, they're cousins. But here's his his Adele, you know, you know, who's like, you know, a West Coast version of of, of Tribe Called Quest or De La Soul, right. you know, very artsy and bohemian. Then you have Ice Cube, who's considered a quote unquote gangster rapper, you know what I mean? But he was really a reality rapper, but they all coexisted. You know, right. what shifted, and I believe this, is that when hip-hop became so big in the late 80s, early 1990s, with MTV, Yo! MTV Rap, with BET Rap City, and the fact that, you know, now the kids who created it are sharing this music with, you know, white kids and Asian kids and other folks who were who didn't necessarily were there, not there creating at the beginning. I believe especially for white kids who were getting into the music, it became threatening, and that's when the music became became redirected because I believe that the power structure is like, oh, no, we can't have this music that Chuck D, a public enemy, is calling Black America CNN because they're actually not only talking about parties and having a good time, but they're talking about a style of Shakur. They're talking about all kinds of revolutionary thoughts. You know, they're encouraging people to fight the power. They're challenging, you know, you know, uh, um, white icons like Elvis Presley and John, and, and, and John Wayne. That is unacceptable you know what i mean and i believe that it was purposely rerouted of the, the massive popularity of dr dre's the chronic you know toward n-i-g-g-a's b-i-t-c-h's you know drugs alcohol partying violence you know over and over again and that actually if you go back to 1993 with the release of, of that album you know and come to the present literally those have been the same themes that have dominated the majority of the number one hip-hop albums from every single year from 1993 right up to the present 2018 and i do believe just like the minstrel shows that were created in the 1800s that depicted mm-hmm. black folks as over sexualized violent dangerous immoral just like the black exploitation movies over and over again, over-sexualized, violent, dangerous, immoral, just like those racist cartoons and newspapers in 100 years ago, violent, dangerous, over-sexualized, immoral. Those are the same things that you see in hip-hop today. So I think we got to be careful as older people to just blame young people and say, well, they destroyed the culture, they destroyed the music. No, it's the system, the the record labels, which represent the power structure that actually rerouted this whole thing, number one. And number two, I think that it's very important for us to understand, you know, that, 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 uh, uh, poor people, you know, and most of the kids making the music have always been poor people are simply going to do what's in front of them. And so they don't, they don't know. Most of us don't know that, that, that Pacifica radio exists or NPR exists, that there's alternative. What they see are the radio stations that are owned by the multinationals that pump in the same 12, 13 same songs tape. over and over yep. again. And if they grew up in a school system like I did, where I learned nothing K through 12, like nothing about black history, nothing about black culture. You know what I mean? All I knew was black folks were slaves. You know, Dr. King had a dream. Rosa Parks didn't give him a seat. And now we're free. And that was it. <laughs> you feel what I'm saying? They didn't even talk about the civil rights movement. And I was born at the end of the civil rights movement. You understand what I'm saying? And so I think that we have to understand that this is a larger problem of systemic racism that every time we even create something that's about light and possibility i.e hip-hop culture it gets turned into darkness and death which is the hip-hop industry which is two different things entirely Mm. and i know we're running short on time i wanted to ask are you able to talk a little bit about your current project that you're working on and what brought you here to Oakland? are you able to talk at all about the the tupac biography I mean, it's um, it's my 14th book, and I just thank God and the ancestors every single day that um, me, a, a poor black boy born and raised in Jersey City, New Jersey, as you said, to a single mother. She had a, a my mother has an eighth grade education, um, but the first leader and teacher I ever met, she's the one who instilled in me from when the time I was three or four years, I'm going to college, I'm going to college, I'm going to college. But I grew up in rat and roach infested tenements. I grew up... Mm-hmm only seen my father two or three times. He was 11, 12 years older than my mother, never married her, uh, never even 
you know, he played around with her and said, oh, we're good married. And it didn't happen. And then when I was eight years old, you know, via a phone call, didn't even have the courage to look my mother in the eyes, but via a telephone call, told my mother, uh, you lied to me, which is not true. She, you know, I am his son, you know, um, uh, he's not my son. I'm not going to give you a near nickel, as he put it in his South Carolina dialect to her ever again. And that was it. You know what I mean? So this is where I come from. My mother's mother, my grandmother, my late grandmother could not read or write at all. And so I feel blessed um, just to be able to be a writer, you know, to do something not just for myself, not just for a career. I don't use the term career anymore. I say that it's a journey. It's a life with many chapters. It's a journey with many chapters. The story of our communities, you know, that's what I, I feel about. And so Tupac is a part of that. I was blessed. To, um, we were blessed to cross paths in um, March or April of 1993 at a famous music concert conference called jack the rapper in atlanta georgia and unbeknownst to me when when we met because i was i was hesitant to go meet him because there was a whole bunch of people around him because this is right after juice and you know the beginning of his his musical career and he he yelled out yo you my man i, I he watched i had not, he had watched the real world he had watched mtv's <laughs> huge fan of mine as much as i was a huge fan of his and he instantly said yes i would love to do an interview with you and he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, you know, uh, when we did the first interview, uh, that he wanted me to be Alex Haley to his Malcolm X. Now, in my wow. head, in my head, I said, brother, to him, I'm Malcolm X, man. And that's my hero. <laughs> uh, but I said, all right, cool. But it's almost like he knew. It's almost like he knew he wasn't going to live a long time. And little did I know, I would spend the next three years between Atlanta, New York, New York prison, where I interviewed him in for a jail interview, famously L.A. Vegas when they announced his death at the hospital. I was, you know, I, I I was there in Vegas, and so, and I literally have not been back to Vegas since he died because that was traumatic, you know. And so I'm actually, you know, here in the Bay Area, not only to do these speeches and do, you know, any kind of community work I can to support folks as I always do, but I'm interviewing people all around the country, including a lot of folks who knew him here in the Bay because Tupac had a great love for the Bay Area, a great, great love for the Bay Area, and I'm also. Um, going to finally get back to Vegas in a couple months just to re retrace all of my steps back to September of 1996, you know, to wow. recreate, you know, what I remember of how it all unfolded those six or seven days he was on light, you know, he was surviving, hanging on. And then that tragic day when he died, it's a, um, mm. it's a heavy book. I've interviewed a lot of people and honestly, I've cried during interviews. Sometimes people have cried you know, um, and sometimes we've cried together. I've had to take breaks several times. And I literally have been working on this book in my head for the, since the day he died. So honestly, I have people ask me all the time, well, how long have you been working on a book? I'm like 22 years. But wow. physically starting, you know, to write the book over the last couple of years and physically interviewing people really seriously the last couple of years, because I've been through my own life journey. And also just like with the whole reality TV thing. I don't believe in living in the past, being stuck mm -hmm. in the past, because I think the past can be a prison if we allow it to be. You know, and there's a lot of people that are stuck in the 90s, stuck in the 80s, stuck in the 70s, stuck in the 60s. And so I'm very clear that I have to have an intention. There has to be a real reason why I'm doing something. And for me with Tupac, I've made peace with the fact that people see me as one of the prime documentarians of his life and people trust me and people have been asking me all these years kevin when are you going to do a book kevin why not you when are you when is it going to happen you know and what i did not know at the time when he died you know c-dub that tupac would become a multi-generational global 
yeah. pop culture, hip hop icon. There was no way to predict it. So I literally have been in different parts of the world where he has come up. And I said, you know what? I've got to represent this for all these different people. So this is why I decided to do it. And it's a monumental task. It's, it's turned my spirit inside out. You know, I feel his spirit talking to me all the time, every day, you know, but I feel I have to do it because it's bigger than him. It's bigger than me. It's really about a history, you know, that we've experienced in this country and, and through his lens, if that makes sense. And so that's what I can say. It's going to be it's going to be a very important book. I think, you know, there's so many like we talked about all the different topics that you cover with manhood. His life covers so many topics, whether it's, you know, things that he talked about when he was alive. You know, the way that things that he said really comes into where we are right now. I don't even think I realized it until um, To Pimp a Butterfly came out when when Kendrick used that interview of his, you know, interspersed with a conversation. To me, that was the most profound thing. I was only kind of a a, a kind of Tupac musical fan. I was always more a fan of him as him as an artist, as you know, as an actor, and a lot of his poems and words that he said. His music, you know, I listened to it in in twelfth grade, great. But I was really a fan of him as a humanitarian. So I think that that's going to be a very important book, and I wish you so much. You know, Ashe and good vibes and all the prayers and everything, because I know it's it's going to take a huge, you know, toll on you. And if you need someone to walk with you through Vegas, I offer myself because I love <laughs> Vegas. So I, so if you need someone to be your escort and to to, you know, hold your hand and be a shoulder to cry on, I will be there with you because you are my cousin, Kevin, and I love you. So I, um, one. <laughs> go no, ahead. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. I was going to say one Important question to me. I mean, we here at the C-Dub show, we love to have very serious conversations, but some of those conversations come out of silly questions. So I have to ask you as a hip hop historian, this very important question. Are we cranky old people or is current hip hop really this bad? I, I don't embrace the word old at all. I don't even use <laughs> I don't even use, um, no, I don't. I don't embrace the word old. I don't use the term old school. I say classic hip hop, you know. Um, and I just, I think I had a, I, me, me and Crazy Legs have become very close. He's one of the, our legendary hip hop pioneers, you know, legendary mm-hmm. B boy, legendary break dancer. Um, um, and we share the same sentiment. You know, we can't, I don't want to become my parent or parents where every generation, this is the generation behind them. I think I call it generational dissing. I don't want to participate in that. I said what I said before. I think the whole society has been severely dumbed down. That's why you see a lot of bad stuff coming out of music. It's not just hip hop, it's R&B, it's rock and roll, it's jazz. I cannot stand smooth jazz, for example. I'm like, not. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and, 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 you know, I cannot listen to music that feels like elevated music when I, you know, I love John Coltrane, I love Nina Simone, I love Billy Holly, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn. You know, I know what Jack, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, who's holding it, holding it at 90-something is really the last of the great crooners that's still alive. And so I just think that um, entire uh, uh, industry of music and hip-hop has fallen prey to that. You know, every generation is going to have their own style. So I'm like, okay, if y'all want to do mumble rap? That's cool. I, I have to listen to it. And just like you do, because we work with young people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm very conscious of, you know, because I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. About 15 years ago, when, when, when you know, Dre and, and Eminem put on, uh, you know, um, 50 Cent, 
I did a, I went to, I was at a prison, the same prison that I did an interview with Tupac Shakur in Rikers Island, New York. I got up there and I said, I just blurted out, I think 50 Cent is whack. I actually said that publicly at the, in the prison, filled with a whole bunch of black Latino males. I would say that didn't go over well. And one, <laughs> one young man actually said, 50 Cent is my father. And I had to take a step back and remember that when Tupac was alive, when he got shot the first time and he survived those five bullets, he became like a mythological figure, like a superhero to people. You know what I mean? And I had to remember, wait a minute, I have eight bullets. And he had reinvented himself as this, this hugely successful rapper. And so in the absence of us learning black history or even it being available to us in our lives, in our families, in our churches, or other religious institutions, in the school system, definitely not in the mass media culture, you know, these heads represent something for young people, especially I'm talking about poor people because I represent poor people. I will always see the eyes through the lens of working class people and people are going to flock towards something that means something to them. That's just real. It's mad real like that. You know, last night when I was in Hayward, you know, I was struck by the fact that one of the people, one of the groups that got an award was a bicycle group, um, a bicycle club out of Oakland making moves. You know, they call themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, they become the sheroes, the heroes for our communities, you know, and good or bad or indifferent with, with, with hip hop today until young people see that there's other things out there beyond current hip hop or just hip hop in general or just wanting to be a basketball player or football player because that's what they're bombarded with every single day. They got to know that people like you exist. They got to know that people like me exist, that there are other possibilities. This is going to be the dominant thing in their lives. You know what I mean? Mm. And then on top of it, I just feel that people only see it as a cash cow at this point. I'm talking about the hip hop industry. What's the fastest way to make money? It's not just hip hop, but it's all the music. They just copy the same stuff over and over again. So they've literally have stripped away the creativity. I mean, look where we're at, the Bay Area. The Bay Area has one of the richest history histories in the whole country of musical diversity. Everything from, you know, rock and roll, as you know, to jazz music, to funk, you know, soul right. music, you know, the, the you know, you know, one of my favorite moments through the course of working on the Tupac book has been interviewing people who grew up in the Bay Area and they're sharing with me the foundations of hip hop that started in the 60s and 70s and 80s right here in the Bay Area. I mean, it's incredible, mm, yeah. you know, but, you know, what does it mean mostly, you know, C-Dub more than anything is that I wonder if a Prince could be could exist today, if a Nina Simone could exist today, you know, if a Tony 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 could exist today, you know, um, because if Anita Baker could exist today, because it's almost like the people who really have talent, who really love music, and who really the the, the problem is that people are not even being developed to be real artists. You can literally put okay. a video on on the internet on YouTube, and then you become famous. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's doing a disservice. Like we're we're the country and we're the people that gave the world this amazing music. There'd be no Adele, no Ed Sheeran, all those folks coming out of England who are imitating Black American artists as we know. You know, if it wasn't for Black music out of this country and to see what has happened to our music, yeah, it hurts me. It hurts me. It hurts me to my soul. But I feel like my job educate people especially young people about the our music and say hey this is who we are this is where we came from and even say that this you know people who are obsessed there are people who are obsessed with tupac i'm like do you even know who tupac listened to who's e40 mm-hmm. you know who's big daddy Kane? who's chuck d who's latifa you know what i'm saying because if you just start with Pac and biggie that's a problem if you just start with stop start with kanye or jay-z that's a problem that's it's a like, problem yeah we got to know the whole a lot history. of people don't know our our whole history they really do think 
I, one thing I run into when I meet people who are non-black music lovers who think that they're like R&B junkies and then you really put like real R&B like not just you know Michael Jackson who we love or New Edition who some of them don't know New Edition <laughs> they a lot of times they don't have that contextual you know history of our music and it's kind of sad which leads into since we're running short on time our very last wrap-up question it's a very short question in the history of all of black music, what is your favorite music album or piece of work by black artists? Any genre. One album. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I just say my favorite artist ever? Can I do that? That's fine. Sam. Love, 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 love Sam Cooke because he was an incredible singer who could sing in any genre you know, of music. I love him because he was an amazing songwriter. I mean, A Change Is Gonna Come Alone is one of the most important songs that's ever been made in world music history. I love him mm-hmm. because he was an amazing producer and arranger, and also because he had his own record label. He owned the label, he owned the publishing, and he was putting on other artists. And before, you know, um, um, I believe that his label would have been as big, if not bigger than Motown, had he not been tragically killed. And you can't talk about, you know, Diddy, Kanye, any of these folks who've come along, you know, as producers since then, Dre, uh, even Curtis Mayfield. I mean, Sam was doing stuff before Curtis Mayfield was doing his thing with things like Superfly in the 70s. He just was, um, man, I, I just love him. I love what he represented. And, you know, when you think about the fact that he was close friends with both Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, and the three of them, them were together in Miami when Ali won the championship for the first time. I mean, he wow. was just so living, breathing example of, of, of black power and black genius and black excellence. And so I, I hold him up and I, I, I listen to his music all the time, like all the time, or, you know, I mean, show tunes, he did jazz, he did all kinds of stuff. He did popular songs. He just was a bad brother. And I really encourage people to really take some time and study his, um, um, his music. You know what I'm saying? That is a very interesting choice. I did not expect that. I thought you was going to say like Tribe Called Quest or something. I am shocked, but I love it anyway. <laughs> no, because I mean, because, the, you know, before hip hop, I mean, you know, what I mean, and the fact is, you know, there's no hip hop without the music that came before. it. I mean, when you talk True. about Tribe, I mean, the genes of, of you know, Ali Shaheed Muhammad and, 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 and you know, the, 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 the music that they um, sampled, I mean. It's, it's really a it's really a it's really a tour through our music history, and I mean, in my book, the new book, my mother Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and the last stand of an angry white man. I have a I have a you know a piece about you know prodigy you know who died from Mob Deep. I have a piece about a tribe called Quest, and make a point to talk about the music that influenced them. In fact, Prodigy's mother was a singer in one of the famous girl groups of the 1960s. You know what I'm saying? Really? And his, his, his grandfather was a jazz musician. You feel what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, or Prince's mother and father were, you know, were, were, were his, mo- his father was a jazz musician. His mother was a jazz singer. So we all come from source sort of tradition before us. And I just, it's Sam Cooke for me. And if I had to pick one album, if you really insisted, it's Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. It's Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. That's nice. my album. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Cousin Kevin, for coming on the show. And no, people, we are not real cousins, but we are cousins in our hearts. And that is all that's important. <laughs> we are cousins in the black sense. <laughs> that's right. We are we are black cousins. Kevin, where can we always at the end of the show give out any socials that we want to give out to the people? So where can people find you? I'm sure they can find your work all over Amazon. But where is the best place for them to find you in the interwebs? Okay, so on Facebook and Instagram, Kevin Powell in Brooklyn. Kevin Powell in Brooklyn, please follow me. I'll follow you back. Hit me up there. 
folks can email me anytime. Kevin at KevinPowell.net. Kevin at KevinPowell.net. And Twitter is at Kevin underscore Powell, at Kevin underscore Powell. And, you know, just um, out there, I mean, just just thank you for this wonderful opportunity because I love shows like yours where we can have real conversation and in-depth conversations, not just the soundbite stuff that you see on these major networks. Mm-hmm. I, and I do those, but it's just like, man, I ain't, I couldn't even say anything. I had three minutes and it was over, you know what I'm saying? So just thank you for, <laughs> for giving me the space because I support all forms of media. So this is just important to me as being on CNN or MSNBC or any other thing. I got to say that, you know, to you. And I come out of, you know, black media, you know, you were uh, talking about Word Up and Write On. I didn't write for those publications, but I did write for black newspapers. That's how I got my training as a journalist. And so I take very seriously supporting all forms of media, especially that really represent the people. And so, you know, just shout out to all the folks there. And I'm just happy to do this with you. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And folks, you can find the C-Dub show across all social media platforms. That is Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as the C-Dub show. You can also email us at the C-Dub show at gmail.com. Please make sure that you subscribe on on iTunes, Apple Music, Acast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spreaker. And check us out at ssnpodcast.com or just go straight to the C-Dub show show.com that is our show for today and we will see all of you good folks later It's enjoyable to know you in the concubines Niggas, take off your coats Ladies, act like gems Sit down, Indian styles You recite these hymns See, lyrically, I'm Mario Andretti on the Momo Ludicrously speedy or infectious with the slow-mo Heard me in the 80s, 80s. The C-Dub Show